to another episode of Dialogues. Today I'm talking to Jeremiah Johnson, who's the host of the neoliberal podcast, and actually it's a, a joint episode. We talk about what it means to be a neoliberal, a new liberal, a progressive, or uh, just a liberal, and what it means to be a liberal today, what it means to update liberal principles for the challenges we face from the authoritarianism on the right and on the left, the history of this terminology, the use of identity politics. Jeremiah argues that we live in an identity politics era, and so you should lean into that. And that's part of the attempt to recapture this idea of neoliberalism, which is now part of the center for new liberalism at the Progressive Policy Institute. We question whether or not liberals have to be Democrats now. We talk about race-conscious policies in light of some of the culture war issues that are going on. And we each recommend some further reading on these whole issues of uh, liberty, liberalism, neoliberalism, etc. So pretty wide-ranging discussion, which I really enjoyed. I hope you do too. Welcome, everyone, to a joint episode of the Neoliberal Podcast and Dialogues with Richard Reeves, a new podcast from Richard Reeves. I'm the host of the Neoliberal Podcast, Jeremiah Johnson, and I'm joined today by Richard Reeves. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and he's the host of the new podcast, Dialogues with Richard Reeves. And today we're doing a joint podcast to talk about liberalism, what's going on in the world right now, and how we update liberalism for a world that's very different, you know, from when the original liberals were thinking. So welcome to this uh, joint episode, mm -hmm. Richard. <laughs> Well, welcome to you, Jeremiah. I'll, I'll introduce you. Uh, this is going to be fun. My first joint episode. So thank you for agreeing to do this. And your people, your listeners will know who you are. But Jeremiah Johnson is the director of the Neoliberal Project and host of the Neoliberal Podcast, which you're listening to. And I really hope we're going to start with, I can't remember which philosopher it was. I always think it was Bertrand Russell, but it wasn't who said, I spend my mornings defining a few clarifying a few concepts and my afternoons making a few distinctions. And so I think actually I'm, I'm really hoping you can help me out with some of this, Jeremiah, around what we're talking about here uh, and where the neoliberal project sits and what that means for some of these broader issues too. I'm a, I'm a recovering British liberal uh, struggling to figure out what to call myself in the US. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I see this as an extended therapy session. I hope that's going to be okay with everybody. Oh yeah. And I mean, Semantic arguments are always just the best arguments the best. to get into, right? The best <laughs> the for be an hour, the for at least an hour. Let's just let's just spend an hour on the difference between. I want to spend an hour on the difference between new liberalism and neoliberalism. You know, it's funny we have internal discussions about what to call ourselves sometimes because the the neoliberal label, and, and I can talk about why we why we choose that. It was kind of chosen for us in a sense, where mm. in the wake of the twenty sixteen election. If you liked Hillary Clinton rather than Bernie Sanders, people from the left would call you, you know, you dirty neoliberal, you know, you neoliberal mm. shill or something. And and at some point, it, it, people say that enough, and you're like, well, if if being kind of a, a Clinton or Joe Biden or or like Pete Buttigieg style Democrat is being a dirty neoliberal, then I guess that's what I am. You know, I'm, mm. I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, yeah. So it, it it started with a bit of irony. But it's also a very good way to get attention, to call yourself a proud neoliberal. I don't know. It's just – it's very good at getting attention. The downside is that obviously it has a lot of emotional baggage and a lot of negative connotations for, you know, especially people in the academic realm. Neoliberal is kind mm -hmm. of used as a slur word. So we have – 
like local chapters that will call themselves the, the new liberals of whatever the the Texas A and M new liberals or the Nashville new liberals rather than neoliberal. So it is actually this this kind of semantic argument is something we think about all the time. Well, I think because behind the semantics there there does lie some some substance, uh, and I, I was looking into this a little bit, uh, and I saw the statement from Colin Mortimer when you all joined forces with your PPI at saying that it was, we wanted to poke fun at people who were calling us that word. So it was a, it's sort of the political equivalent of the word queer or something similar to that, which is you sort of do some jujitsu on it and say, okay, we're going to turn it against you. But I was, I, I looked this up. I couldn't remember how long, what, how long ago it was. A friend of mine, Steve Perlstein, who writes for the Washington Post, so actually he's stopped writing for the Post now, but he wrote a, a review, a joint review of my book and another book called Broken Ladder. And he asked me what I thought of it. And and that's a very, you know, he disagreed with a lot of what I said. But I said, the bit that stuck with me is you called me a neoliberal. Uh, and I was I was a bit offended by that. And and now, of course, I don't know it. That was in, but that was in 2017. And that was because I was coming at it with exactly the approach you've just taken, which is in Europe and in academia, neoliberal has a very specific specific meaning. And most people are trying to get beyond it. And what you've all done is in this online space and with the shill and more more generally is to take it and do something very different with it. So I sometimes, I'm in whiplash sometimes. I'm having conversations with foundations and academics and historians and so on about getting beyond neoliberalism. And then you've all come along and you've created a space within that term, which I I don't think is neoliberalism in the academic or historical sense i think it's sort of a pr- pragmatic <laughs> centrism to some extent so maybe it's liberalism uh, rather than neoliberalism and now and i'm gonna as we're into this now i'll push you on it jeremiah because you can help explain this to me you've got the neoliberal project and the neoliberal podcast which we're on now in the center for new liberalism in the progressive policy institute and obviously i know a lot of people there so are you a progressive new neoliberal unpack that for me just like <laughs> we're, we're or, or, claiming all we're claiming all of the words they all belong to us now and as as a, as a as a british liberal as a mill liberal i i just think the word liberal really wouldn't it be great if we could just use that rather than have to have all these sort of post neoliberal progressive center left pragmatic technocratic neo whatever liberal how about just liberal wouldn't wouldn't that be great it would be, it would be, it, but you, semantic confusion being what it is, you know, the word liberal for a long time in the United States meant, you know, scary leftist. It, it's funny, the the Progressive Policy Institute, today, this organization that we're part of now, progressive codes further to the left than mm. liberal does, but they named themselves the mm. Progressive Policy Institute in the 1980s. Because it was a way to get around the scary word that was liberal. You know, in the 1980s, mm-hmm. calling yourself a liberal was was basically an insult. And so back then, Progressive Policy Institute actually registered as more centrist than being a proud liberal. So mm-hmm. it, it, it is funny the way that all these words work. And, you know, the, the origin story of us using the word neoliberal is steeped in kind of irony and and second level effects of like, you know, well, if you're going to yell this thing at me where I'm going to reclaim mm. it. But but it is interesting to think about the history of these ideas and the lineage of them. And, and obviously, you probably know a lot more about, you know, some of the original liberal philosophers than I do. You, you've written a biography of, of Mill, who's one of my heroes. But 
I, you know, if, if we skip forward a little bit past the originals, past, you know, Mill and some of those very, very early philosophers, and you get into the very first people to call themselves neoliberals, they were a collection of academics through the 1930s and 1940s. And they were meeting up at these conferences like the Walter Lippmann Colloquium, like the Montparlin Society. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, the 1930s and 40s were not a great time for liberalism. You had, you know, actual literal Nazism on the rise. And, and you know, there's world wars being fought over this. You had Stalinist communism, kind of this totalitarian, dystopian kind of leftism on the rise. And, and, and we shouldn't forget that for a lot of people, a lot of academics really thought that this kind of, you know, this wave of leftism was just the future that, you know, very obviously this, you know, communism is a better way to run an economy than free market capitalism, which is too chaotic to understand anything. And this, this was a real thought. There were a lot of very serious economists who thought this. And so you had these liberals looking at this world thinking, has liberalism failed? You know, classical liberalism, this laissez-faire classical liberalism that it's normally associated with has not done enough for us. And we need to create a new liberalism to fight, you know, authoritarianism and totalitarianism on the right and the left. And that's where the origins of the word neoliberal come from, mm-hmm. is from, you know, the 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 Hayek's and Hayek, the yeah, um, yeah. yeah and the particularly MPS which I know you've yeah, talked pr- about on particularly this. Montparlin Society but so I look at what we're doing as an as an outgrowth of that you know it's it, it if you think about eighty years past between the original liberal philosophers and the Montparlin Society about eighty years have passed since the Montparlin Society was kicking around originally and and now and the solutions for today's problems are not the same solutions that, you know, Hayek was thinking of in 1940. There's still a lot we can learn from Hayek and Milton Friedman and, you know, a, a lot of these guys who are, you know, Austrians and Germans who, who kind of created the school of ordo-liberalism. There's still a lot mm-hmm. we can learn from them, but liberalism needs to be refreshed every once in a while. And so, you know, maybe we are the new neoliberals. Maybe this is the latest iteration of liberalism. And what we're doing is somewhat of a self-conscious attempt to kind of revitalize liberalism, to say, you know, liberalism still has solutions for today's problems, that you don't have to fall into this, you know, the same traps that we're we're looking at, the, you know, into a socialist economy or into kind of a, a right-wing authoritarian mindset that, you know, liberalism has been great for the world and we should we should keep using it to find solutions. So there's there's so much in here. I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I think the question is whether that's the right whether that's the right touchstone to go back to. And I and I do you know you said well let's let's don't don't worry about the 19th century. But to some extent, I think that because the 20th century was was so bad for liberalism for many of the reasons that you've described, what that means is that the people you've just mentioned. Um, Hayek, a good example, but even you know, I'd say people like Isaiah Berlin, Karl Popper, all the people that you've talked about quite a bit, they were reacting quite strongly against authoritarianism of one kind or another, of left or right. And in many cases, they experienced it themselves. So it was very striking how many of the people who were talking about themselves emigres or had experienced firsthand some of the 
really you know, brutal excesses of authoritarian regimes. It's easy to forget that when you're thinking about it from more recent history. But because the reaction was so strongly against authoritarianism and such the horrific things that we'd seen in the 20th century, to some extent, the neoliberal intellectual project, I think, became too individualistic, too, too pro-market, uh, almost as an ideological set of principles against authoritarianism. And you can completely see why that was the case. But it, uh, my argument for going back to a different kind of liberalism like Mill is precisely because those questions, in a sense, the questions were legs less existential. And I think we can then get into a conversation whether we're in the same place now in terms of how existential it is. But what it was really about, how do you balance liberty and authority in industrializing economies? So, you know, who, how, how do we think about democracy? They were, the, the, the stakes were lower for liberalism in Europe in the 19th century. I think, obviously, things were very different in the US, which is one of the reasons why US liberalism is such a kind of weird creature. But I do think that some of those questions that we're struggling with, just how do you make economies work? What's the balance? And a less ideological view in particular about the role of the state, which you find in 19th century liberalism, both in France and uh, in Britain, and to some extent Germany, might be more useful to us. Now, then the question is what's happened more recently. Obviously, 89 through till 2008 was a kind of a moment of hubris of liberal triumph where we didn't need to argue for liberalism because it was just obvious that we were winning. And I think that kind of happened. Um, and so liberals stopped fighting. And then 2008 comes along and then we see the rise of populism and authoritarianism. And liberals are sort of looking around for the old weapons that we used to use intellectually after the last 20 years. So it's been an interesting period of horrific you know, 19th century development, at least in Europe, horrific 20th century pretty good end to the 20th century from a liberal perspective, then into the Great Recession and populism, not so great now. And so I do think that the project, if we can describe the project as how do we find the right tools to argue for broadly liberal principles, great. I think whether Mont, Peller, you know, Mont Pelerin and Hayek is necessarily where one would go for that, I, I worry a little bit that that tends towards a more libertarian direction and more towards individualism rather than individuality. No, I, I, I'm in pretty full agreement there. You know, I, I think that the Montparlin crowd had a lot of reasons to be oriented in the way that they were. Uh, obviously, the state in general was was not as far reaching as it was as it is today. The state capacity in, in most places around the world is a lot higher today. And so they had, you know, more natural reasons to be skeptical of state power. They also, you know, were, were living through the Holocaust and, you know, some of the, the great crimes of Soviet communism. And when your foil is Soviet totalitarian Stalinism, I can understand if you have a little bit of excess going in the free market direction and, and extolling the virtues of, of free market capitalism. I, I will forgive you for that sin. Um, yes. you know, today, I, I don't think there's any serious philosophical argument that it, that authoritarianism on the left, at least, is, is a real option. There are certainly authoritarian countries still in the world and, and they pose a, a pretty grave danger to the world, I would argue. But within the West, authoritarianism is not really an issue for the left. The, the question on the left is how much government should we have in, in the terms of 
economic intervention and taxation and, and state programs and things like that. The question on the right is very much a question of authoritarianism. But so I, I look at the original neoliberals as an inspiration more for the principle of being able to update what your philosophy means in response to the times that you're living in. Mm. And I think that, you know, I would do the same thing with them. I would change a lot of things that that Hayek and Milton Friedman and, you know, some of these guys like Alexander Rousteau and, you know, they had valuable ideas, but we can't be stuck with those ideas. And, and today's neoliberals probably would argue for a greater degree of, say, welfare state spending or regulation than someone like Hayek would have. And and I think that's perfectly fine. That's that's the world that we live in today. Sure. Yes, because they because they don't see. Hopefully, today we don't see it as the, the sort of slip, slippery slope. We're not so concerned about the overreach of the state. And I've quoted one of my favorite lines from Mill is that the interference of government is with about equal frequency, improperly invoked and improperly condemned. And so, I think the correct liberal position on the state is one of agnosticism. I think it's, well, it depends what it's doing. You could have a larger, you could have a, it's certainly not about the size of the state. And and I think one of the problems is with the history you just identified is that for understandable reasons, which you've also described, it, neoliberalism or liberalism became too much about what's your view on the role of the state, right? State versus market, et cetera. And so it became really very uh, overshadowed, I think, by this question of statism rather than saying, well, it depends. Right. I mean, I'm not, it, you know, it's not an existential question. It's like you, you can imagine a state that's bigger and more liberal, smaller and less liberal. It depends what the state is using its money for. If you define liberalism properly, in my view, which is around autonomy and, and so on, which we can get into, then I think the role of the state becomes a hugely important question. But it's it's on, on the level of principle, somewhat second order. And but for years, and this is where it ended up. This is why I got offended by Steve Perlstein's line is because. As a European, you know, neoliberal is the sort of Thatcherite, Reaganite view that government's the problem, right? The famous line about government being the, the problem, not the same, and so on. And Thatcher was similar, at least rhetorically. And so this sense of being anti-government was really what it meant to be neoliberal in certainly growing up in the UK under Thatcher. And so that's, I think that's why I had that reaction against it. Whereas we're sh surely at a point now where we can get beyond this idea of how you judge someone's politics by whether they think the state should be 35% in GDP or whatever. Yeah, I think that you're correct here. And that what's important is how that, that state spending is being constructed more so than what the percentage is. Yes. There's certainly ways to spend a lot of money that are intelligent and that you could argue enhance freedom. There's ways to spend money that are really, really dumb and that are, you know, would be a boondoggle. It, it depends mm -hmm. on the details. I, I think what unifies our crowd is kind of a belief that markets are a really valuable tool and they can create an enormous amount of prosperity. And that doesn't mean that we're going to have perfectly free markets all the time, you know, in, in a libertarian sense or in some sort of anarcho-capitalist sense, but it means that we recognize the value of that tool. It's an incredibly valuable tool to have in your toolbox. Free markets are very, very good at creating wealth in most situations. That doesn't mean that they're the only tool that you have, you know, if you're as, as an economist, you have to think about negative externalities 
monopoly power and and all sorts of conditions that exist where the state is going to be needed to step in and regulate things you're going to need to think about what kind of social welfare function you know you have in your head where you know it, it is the market creating wealth but also creating too much inequality and should we have a a social welfare state to remedy that most modern neoliberals the people who would willingly use that label today are in favor of both you know markets and a, a strong social welfare state and we tend to not think that those things are opposed that you know you can have a really dynamic free market society and a strong welfare state at the same time and you know the, the technocratic details of that matter you know whether you're spending money in an intelligent way or a dumb way is up to the details of the program to be honest yes and i think that's uh, to some extent this is familiar territory because it's very third wayish i mean it's very clinton i know ppi has those backgrounds very i served in the first blair government which ages me quite a bit i fear but uh and then obviously and i served in the coalition government but i was in you know, briefly working on welfare reform for for Frank Field, who was Blair's welfare reformist. And so I, to some extent, my political upbringing was during that period where the left particularly lost, just lost and lost and lost, especially in the UK. And then Blair came along and then Clinton. So some of that feels quite familiar to me, but there's a, dan there's a danger. There's I would a danger. break in with a question there, just because sure. I'm not as familiar with the political story on the other side of the pond. Why is it, do you think, that you know, I think it's something like only two labor leaders have won an election in on their own mm. in in like fifty or sixty years or something. Like, what what actually caused the, the the weakness of the labor party to the extent that we see it? Well, that's a huge question and one that I think I am only partially <laughs> poli partially qualified <laughs> to answer. But I mean, and, and of course, it's partly you know, these things. Uh, the there's luck and chance and. All sorts of reasons, but but maybe people from outside the UK probably don't realise the impact of the Falklands War and how important that was to Thatcher's re-election, and because that was her first term was pretty brutal economically, but then we fought and won a war, and that had quite a big impact on Thatcher's re-election. But I think it was partly because that the reaction to the the sense of like the, in the seventies that just things weren't working. <laughs> and and so it did need a reaction to that. There was a strong sense of, I think, if you couldn't understand why people voted for Margaret Thatcher, there was something wrong with you in my view. Right? If you grew up in a working class town and you uh, wanted to do better for yourself and you didn't understand why people could, you know, the people who just didn't understand Thatcher and thought she was evil and, and so on. I, in fact, my old boss would only hire people who could answer the question, why, why could people vote for Thatcher? Because there was a sense the country was broken and going backwards, and and she offered this kind of new this new hope, and so and the left just went left. I mean, under Michael Foot, this is way more detail than probably want, but in the the eighties, just just went left and left, and at one point was in favour of unilateral nuclear disarmament, for example, and very statist policies, and so it became pretty easy for Thatcher and then the Conservative Party to just keep beating that. So Labour just lost and lost and lost. There's this great line where Blair was actually under real trouble after the Iraq war and so on. And he stood up in front of the parliamentary Labour Party and he said, look, I stood by this party through three election defeats, 
all I'm asking you to do is stand by me through three election victories. And it was a great Blair moment. It was a quintessential Blair, just steely, um, because that's what had happened. He just recaptured the, the center ground. But part of it was by rejecting what was perceived as neoliberal ideology, the sense that once we got out of the hole, that the, the fetishization of the market. It, it just seems so interesting to me as, as someone who's, you know, outside the, the UK picture, obviously, that Tony Blair is the first Labour prime minister in, in a jillion years, roughly. Mm-hmm, roughly. And, and he's done it via this, you know, third way triangulation that was, mm-hmm. that was, a, you know, ascendant in the 1990s in many countries. And it seemed like as soon as, you know, he won three terms, and after he left the scene, Labour quickly lost power, and they've very quickly returned to kind of this uh, this far left vision of of what the Labour Party should be. And you know, certainly it, it's their right to choose their own politics. But mm-hmm. I I look at you know the success of Tony Blair and think how could how can Jeremy Corbyn be the inheritor of that like why did anyone ever think that was going to work that's why and and that's but well that's why of course he was he was spectacularly unsuccessful and and it's not like jeremy corbyn was running against extremely talented politicians like the the conservative party was vulnerable for quite a while there sure and a different leader uh perhaps would have had a different outcome and, and uh, obviously, British politics is just such a hot mess right now that it's very diff- it's very difficult to draw. Well, any, Americans any can't really. We we don't have any space to be talking. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's a, you're right. It's a close it's a close run thing. But I, you know, one of my things I've said to to my you know my American colleagues and friends is Trump will go, but Brexit will stay. And so I've taken the view all along that the damage, long run damage to many of the things causes that I think we hold dear and at least multilateralism from what's happened in the UK will be will be greater than what's happened in the US. If the US if the institutions of US democracy basically hold, Trump will go. I don't think he'll be able to do too much damage along the way and he'll go and then we'll be able to repair it whereas I'm, Bre- I'm Brexit very, is very I'm different. very worried about that though. I'm I don't take it as a granted that the the democratic institutions in the US are going to hold. I think that if Trump taught the Republican Party anything, he taught them that you can just get away with with anything. It doesn't matter, you know. And frankly, if Trump was a little bit smarter and just a little bit more polite and couth, then he might still be president. And, you know, the, the Republican Party is undertaking pretty blatantly anti-democratic power grabs in a lot of ways where, the, to, to put it very bluntly, it seems like they're just – aiming to establish themselves as a minoritarian rule party into the future where they can get 47% of the vote and control all three branches of government in perpetuity. You know, that's, yeah, that's yeah. something I'm very worried about. Well, I think it depends. I mean, if, if they're able to take power that way and hold it, and then over time to use power to corrode, undermine in the institutions we're talking about, that is obviously a concern. I mean, do you, I look a little bit at Turkey sometimes. You see what Erdogan has has done over time. So, given time and the right inclination, then sure you can start to undermine institutions quite strongly. But look at the way that every single lawsuit brought by Trump and his supporters uh, during the last election was thrown out by the courts. It didn't matter whether they're Republican judges or Democrat judges; they were thrown out. 
and the Supreme Court acting in a similar way. Now, over time, would you start to lose the judiciary? Would the judiciary stop? You know, would you start to see secretaries of state <laughs> acting differently, becoming more political? Would you see Mike Pence behaving differently? I mean, these are troubling times, to be sure. You know, I can, you can imagine a better Trump doing a better job of undermining the institutions that, that we're talking about. But thus far, I think we're okay in the sense that the institutions have held. And so the the damage still remains in the future. I guess what concerns me, and you've alluded to this just now, Jeremiah, is the sense that after Trump had gone, Biden wins, things will go start to slide back towards more normal. Of course, the opposite has happened, partly because of January 6th, partly because Trump contains this mesmeric hold on Republicans, the way that the party's behaving. But I also think, and I, I don't think you've done that much on this, and I, I hope you'll do more, which is the sense of what does it mean? Where does knowledge come from? Where does truth come from? My colleague, Jonathan Rausch, I've done a podcast with him as a book out on the constitution of knowledge, where both left and right are really struggling with the, an epistemic challenge. Like what's true and who decides what's true? What are the systems of truth? And that I think is an under that's a an underpinning problem of many of these other problems and the the capture of different kinds of social media and so on the problems of truth and falsehood and fakehoods and so on that to me is a in a sense a more troubling trend and you even saw it in just to take one example quite live on the lab leak theory right the problems of groupthink on left and right the the overused phrase cancel culture, but the trolling and so on. And John really does a good job of this in his, his book of talking about just this undermining of a shared sense of knowledge. And if if your project is about anything, it does seem to me to have quite a strong claim about epistemology. Right? You do, you're quite technocratic, you're quite evidence-based, you're quite what, you're sort of the quotes, what works, Clintonian formula and so on. So actually that's a, a bigger threat, I think, to the inclination of liberals, let's talk about the liberal inclination, like the or the liberal disposition, which is one. It's quite empirical. It is one that's quite based around facts. It is one that's based around evidence mm -hmm. and falsifiability. That's under that's under attack, not just from the right, but from the left as well, isn't it? Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and I'll say I haven't read the book you're referencing, but it, it sounds fascinating, and I might have to order a copy. What I would say is that. I go back to the dawn of the internet and the early 90s, and there was this real sense among academic types, and I would say this is a very liberal point of view, that with the sharing of information, the internet is going to make all information available to everyone. You know, it's going to be the information superhighway is what they used to call it. Mm -hmm. And there was this kind of utopian view that once this thing has been built out, Everybody's going to be better informed. It's going to make everybody smarter and everybody a better person. And only positive things will come out of this kind of turbocharged information superhighway. It was a very utopian view, I think. And in a lot of ways, a lot of good has come out of the internet. To, to state the obvious, the internet has had a lot of really fantastic applications. But one of the things that I've soured on and that I think a lot of other people have soured on is the idea that it's going to help our our politics or, and, mm. and our ability to understand each other. Because what we've built the infrastructure for is kind of these separated bubbles where, you know, correct information, it's, it, it's easier than ever to learn correct information and to be well-informed 
on just a stunning variety of topics that, you know, in the 1980s, you simply would have never heard of or would have no ability to research without going to some university library and dragging out mm. 10 research books that weighed a, a five pounds each. Mm. You know, now you can just type something into Google and learn anything you want. But it's also made it easier for misinformation and hatred to be spread really, really quickly as well. Yes. And I don't think, I don't think at the beginning of the digital age, we grappled with that properly. And, you know, it, it was kind of this very liberal dream that, you know, if we just have free exchange and free flow of information, that can only be good. And it, it certainly is good in many ways, but we're, we're, we're seeing the downsides. Sure. Actually, I've had a, uh, mentioned Jonathan Rauch already, but uh, I had Nick Clegg come on and talk about the Trump decision on, uh, on my podcast too. And he was, uh, so for those who do, Clegg was deputy prime minister in the coalition government. I worked, I worked for him and now VP at Facebook. And he was pretty honest about the fact there was a sort of frothy techno utopianism. And he's, he's right. If you go back, it was a sense of the democratization of knowledge and the tech people couldn't do anything wrong. And pretty quickly it's gone to the opposite. It's gone from hero to villain pretty quickly as far as tech industry is concerned. I guess I'm a bit more, a little bit more optimistic about the future. I'm not suggesting things aren't very bad now, but but this stuff has happened so fast. I mean, Nick pointed out that uh, Roger Federer was number one before face in tennis before Facebook was born, and so these technologies just have exploded in a way that no one really predicted. No, no one predicted, and that the governance structures around them have been. They've got to catch up. We've all we've all got to get better, more skilled as well. I think there's also an individual skill issue here. It's like figuring out what's good and what's bad. But I do. I will make one distinction though. I think because I think this gets lost a lot, which is the difference between misinformation and disinformation, or if you like, the difference between fake news and false news. The idea of there being wrong stuff out there, or crazy ideas, or eccentric ideas, and stuff that's pre- is that's the lifeblood of liberalism. It's fueled by disagreement and eccentricity and diversity of opinions and so on. But I, but it's a difference between doing so intentionally. Um, Trump had this great example of this where he had this fake news awards. And in most cases, it was, well, they weren't fake news. The journalists got some stuff wrong and then they corrected it. People get stuff wrong all the time. And so there's a big difference between the person that's getting stuff wrong and, and doing so in good faith and then being willing to reverse their views and the person who is intentionally, even when they're falsified and spreading falsehoods. But I think that that distinction is in danger of being lost. And that would be to the huge detriment of liberalism because yeah, I, let's take, I think it's already been lost, unfortunately. <laughs> well, let's take the lab back to the lab leak theory. I mean, actually, Facebook, I talked to Nick about this. Facebook banned content suggesting that COVID may have been created in a lab. They banned it. And they've now unbanned it. And he admitted that that was a, a mistake to ban it. But is it the scientific consensus was it couldn't possibly be. Well, you need to be a bit careful about the scientific consensus sometimes. And you need the eccentric voices. And so it was a really good example of how, look, there could be people out there who are just well-intentioned and think it could have come from a lab. And we better listen to those people, even if they're the minority, because they might turn out to be right. They probably won't. Eccentrics typically aren't right, but occasionally are. And it was a really a troubling example of how this group thing can take over. I think the fake news thing is interesting because I feel like everyone has forgotten that it was an actual technical term 
for about eight days hmm. before Donald Trump co-opted it and turned it into in any news story that I don't like. It was it, on Facebook, there were ads being run that was literally like, like, pardon my language, but it was ads that would be like, Hillary Clinton has ass cancer and will die in six weeks, hmm. you know, and, and like, the, you know, that would show up and that's liter that's, that's literal fake news, you know, or something just crazy like that, that was made up to get to maximize clickbait nonsense through social networks. And quickly it became any piece of news that I disagree with. But when we talk about the idea of cancel culture and the idea of of things being suppressed, like the lab leak theory and the value of these kind of eccentric viewpoints, I think we run into two fundamental issues that are at, at odds with each other. And one of the challenges of modern liberalism is how do we how do we reconcile two values that that don't always line up neatly and and that sometimes contradict each other the first value is the value of diversity and you're kind of getting at this with your our arguments that you know we need these eccentric voices because they're not usually right but sometimes they are and when they are it's very important i think liberals tend to think there's an inherent value in diversity that you know, if if you want to talk about the marketplace of ideas that that people can make fun of that sometimes, but I think there's an inherent value in that and that having a free flowing marketplace of ideas is actually a good thing. And this is how societies grow and prosper is via that kind of healthy debate and dialogue. You know, we're, we're on a podcast mm. here called Dialogues. Mm. And that's a fundamental value of liberalism. And I think liberals appreciate that for the most part in a greater way than the kind of ideological left or ideological right would, where there's more of an instinct to only say the the approved things in on kind of the political extremes. But what you run into is the paradox of tolerance, this is sometimes called, where, you know, should liberals tolerate illiberal ideas, you know, and, and to what degree should they tolerate them? If someone is out there on the street corner, you know, preaching that we need um, healthcare reform. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. If they're out there on the street corner preaching that we need to exterminate some minority group, that that's a very different thing. Mm -hmm. And it's a form of speech, but should we tolerate it? It's this kind of idea, if you tolerate illiberalism or if you tolerate intolerance, then will that not simply overtake your tolerant liberal system? And, you know... These are the debates that we're having, I think, because those two ideas are in in conflict sometimes, and there's no perfect rubric to to decide when are we going to allow a certain kind of speech collectively, when are we going to harshly sanction that speech. We're we're just kind of stumbling through that problem, and it's an especially you know we, we've done this forever. This is McCarthyism in in the 1950s. This is, you know, every free speech debate that's ever been had, but it's especially potent right now because of our information networks that do such a good job of amplifying controversial content, I think. Sure. Excel uh, amplifying and accelerating. So that's the that's the big difference, I think, is that it's not the guy on the soapbox in the corner of Hyde Park, where I come from, saying whatever they want to say. Um, and being free to do that. And actually, Mill was one of the people who argued you should be able to speak freely in public parks when Disraeli tried to stop people from doing that. But how far could they really reach? 
and I guess you could say the same about National Enquirer. You who who read it, who would who would, and you you'd know what you were doing. You could discern which content was which. Whereas now there's an accelerant and an amplification. Sure, I think we're all going to catch up with that. I think I even notice it like in my own you know, my own kind of adult kids how much better they are at recognizing clickbait when they see it. They might still click on it, but they know what they're doing and discerning the value of sources. And so I think there's a lag here on this ethic around the skills. But the questions about the limits of free speech are not new, of course. They're, they're asked in a different way because of social media, but they're, they're as old as the hills. And the arguments about how far you should be able to go are ongoing. And clearly, if it's incitement to violence... And then, or incitement to crime, that's long been accepted as beyond the pale. But we're not in that space right now. We're in a space where actually even, you know, we're not talking about people who are, are going around saying we should exterminate a minority. Of course, that should be curbed. But it's just more different views about different things. I've mentioned the lab leak theory already, but there are lots of areas where you really do want a sense of open dialogue. And I guess the other thing I would say on this is, the concern I've got is the constructive engagement of ideas. So I think we talk about the exchange of ideas, but much more important than exchange of ideas is the engagement of ideas. You know, I've likened the exchange of ideas sometimes like exchange of gunfire. Okay, but who's better off as a result? What you really want, and this is a very John Stuart Mill thought, is what he called the collation of ideas. And so one of the reasons you want to hear from a bunch of people, even if you think they're really very, very different to, to you and sometimes like borderline crazy, is because you might take 1% of what they've said and go, huh, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes me think differently about that. Maybe just like a little bit of what they're saying is true. The idea that there are there's truth A and falsehood B and you put them into combat that's one of the problems with the marketplace of ideas analogies, like one winner. Well, actually, what you really want is the sense of like different people bringing different things to the party and, and collating those ideas, learning from each other through constructive disagreement. And the problem with the bubbles you've just identified is, and this maybe this happens to you too, is that the people who go on the neoliberal podcast and the people who go on the new, they all agree with each other and so you have this sort of sense of it becomes a sort of cheerleading a cheer, it's just a cheerleading echo chamber but actually what you really want to be doing with is engaging with the social conservative communitarians we try to have a pretty good range of opinions you know we i have listened range. to enough to know that you do disagree with each <laughs> other but it's a danger for all it's yeah. a danger for all of us though we've had socialists on in a number of instances we've had social conservatives on um, and, and then, you know, the people who are a little bit closer to our camp, you know, mainstream liberals, libertarians who lean more towards the the practical side of libertarianism. Um, we we have a lot of different types, but it is it is a danger. The the bubble aspect, I would add that the incentive structures of how we've set up our social media really matter. This a conversation mm -hmm. I just had recently with the CEO of Substack. Um we talked about that, you know, using the internet, you can kind of build a heaven or a hell. And hmm. it, the incentive structures for how you build this stuff really matter. If you build a, a blogging style internet where everybody has to write long, thoughtful posts to get attention, and you respond to those long, thoughtful posts with long, thoughtful posts on your own blog, that seems like a, you know, the, the kind of healthy dialogue and, you know, that, that you're thinking of when you think of this marketplace of ideas and people really responding to each other constructively, um, even if they disagree a lot. 
if you think about something else like Twitter, which mm-hmm. is the hell site um, that <laughs> everyone comes to hate, but that no one can quit because it's it's dopamine button is so good. The incentives on Twitter are very much to to just dunk on people and to slam them and to, you know, get a, a quip in a, a pithy insult. And it's impossible to have good conversations on Twitter, but it's very difficult via the nature of, you know, you only have 280 characters or, or whatever it is. And it, it's built such that you can quote tweet someone mm-hmm. and, you know, dunk on them and all your followers will give you likes and replies and that say, you know, yeah, you, you showed them, you know, you insulted them. Good job. And, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone else. I get caught up in it. You know, I, we've gotten a lot of Twitter followers by playing that game and that I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not sure how I feel about it when I, when I talk about it in, in a rational light, but that's what the incentive structure of Twitter is is it's built to maximize, you know, I my group attacks your group and your group rallies and attacks me and it turns into a big, you know, ideological identity-based free for all. And and so I I think about that just yeah. I, I don't have a, a clean conclusion or an answer for you here, no, but I think I agree. about I, the incentive structures. I so I think in, so incentives massively matter for sure. Uh, and I think that therefore as institutions we have to think pretty hard about what are our what are our incentives so within think tanks or or newsrooms what are the incentives and so i go some famous uh, you know an example of this is a, a news site where the number of listeners that um people were not listeners i should say readers was shown on a board live in front of the journalists <laughs> wow <laughs> can't imagine that when i was a journalist back in the day uh, and so there you've you've built in an incentive structure by what you measure number of followers etc and so I think how do we incentivize and reward people is hugely important question for us going forward. But take Twitter as an example. They, now you have to, even just the nudge of, have, do you, would you like to read the article before you retweet it? I mean, I mean it's, that, that is pretty. That is pretty funny that that was a big enough problem they had to do that. But it's, but, but come on, I mean, even occasionally because. I tell you what, because you get to trust certain people, and so you think, yeah, I can probably retweet them without reading it. But would you like to read it? And and it's almost like it's almost like the, you know your, the conscience, your the voice of your own conscience saying, yeah, you really should read this, Richard, before you retweet it. And so you're like, okay, but that puts a bit of friction into the system, which is really really good. And I think what's interesting to me though about something like Twitter, and I think this is a more general problem, which is that the real value of free speech is not to be able to speak it's to be able to hear and this comes back to this point about collation and dialogue which is the skill of listening and being able to hear so hearing listen to what you're saying and what i'm saying i think hmm, that's interesting and be changed somewhat by it i think in some ways that's a deeper problem because what i notice on twitter is is silence and some and, and so it's more that you know that if you say a certain thing, a whole bunch of certain kind of people will retweet it and so on. But what's almost interesting is sometimes when you just put, say something like, hmm, and there's like a deafening silence, and that may be because your followers are like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. They don't necessarily attack you, but it's a sense of not necessarily wanting to engage with it. So it, we get into these grooves, these very easy to follow ruts. If, if you don't give them the easy hit of dopamine that makes them, you know, by attacking the other tribe yes. or whatever, they'll they'll go somewhere else for the hit of dopamine. And Twitter 
all they have to do is scroll down and they'll they'll get that hit, you know. Yeah, so it's not very good at encouraging that this is back to your point, I guess, encouraging engagement. And I think if there's one lesson from the ideas of the liberal ideas of engagement and and exchange, it it is that. It's not this is why I mean Mill never used marketplace of ideas, that was Brandeis, I think, but but it's why I've tried to move a little bit beyond that because it's more, I think, about this sense of how do you create spaces and cultures and norms and incentives which are around engagement. I think to do that, you have to have created an identity. A lot of our project is based around identity. Our theory of politics is explicitly built around identity that all politics is identity politics. And, you know, identity politics in the U.S. at least is normally used as kind of an insult where, oh, if you're if you're black, you care about Black Lives Matter. If you're gay, you care about gay marriage. If you're a woman, you care about women's issues. It's this and it's kind of used to put down like that's not a serious form of politics. But rather than like leaning away from that, I, I think that the reality is that politics leans into that. And, you know, what Donald Trump does with white rural voters and, and white non-college voters is very much identity politics. And even if you get into explicitly ideological projects that are built around a specific named ideology, like the Democratic Socialists of America, for instance, the DSA, even that is an identity. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people whose identity is, I'm a leftist and I'm a DSA member. Yeah. And it comes with its, every everything that you could think about it an identity it comes with. It comes with a specific set of language. It comes with specific terminology that only people inside the group know. It comes with iconography. You use particular mm-hmm. kinds of art. You mm-hmm. listen to particular kinds of music. You have a rose emoji in your Twitter mm-hmm. handle. Mm-hmm. You know, like this, all of this builds up into a tribal identity. And our theory is that basically all politics is identity politics in that sense. Everybody's appealing to some kind of identity group whether it's traditionally a traditional identity or not. And so if you want to have norms around discourse and, you know, the exchange of ideas in a productive way, you have to build an identity that values those. It can't just be you going around to a bunch of other identities saying, please do this. You have to build your own tribe where that is a value. And that's that's part of what we're mm-hmm. explicitly trying to do is build a political identity that values these sort of things, that values the exchange of ideas in a productive way, and that values, you know, the core liberal principles, the, the classical freedoms of, of speech and religion and action and you know, those sorts of things. Because I, I think it's the only way you can really build a, a movement that lasts. Well, that's, yes, I've heard you say that before, Jeremiah, and I think it's a, it's a very interesting claim. And I think it's it's i'm pretty persuaded by it and ezra klein i think has also written about like all politics is identity politics to some extent i think the and i i work at the brookings institution that's my day job and so there i think there is a similar sort of culture of engagement and uh, of ideas think you know i work at a think tank is an identity there's if you meet somebody else from a think tank you'll have similar language similar life experiences similar stories you know it's it's a whole DC insider is an identity, right? Like, 
all of these are are just overlapping identities to me. Yes, what what would hope also that there are certain being an academic or being in certain would also imply not just an insider tribal identity. You're right, but also a way of engaging with the world, and in particular, a way of engaging with ideas and facts and evidence and so on too, which I think is true true of some think tanks more than others, perhaps. But it is a sense of uh, it is a kind of claim about the production of knowledge. I think the challenge, and this is a question for you, and something I really struggle with too, is whether or not the sorts of values uh, that liberals have are sufficiently emotionally engaging. I think you're doing a really good job of making this a tribe and it's fun and it's you talked about the iconography and so on. But the problem that us liberals, if I can say that for a moment, have is that things like the rule of law, evidence-based policymaking, pluralism, respectful disagreement, don't have quite the same emotional excitement as the blood and soil populism of the right, very often religiously inflected, and the social justice clarity of the left. They they have the better tunes, don't they? Whereas we say, mm, yeah. we, we, so what, what we end up saying <laughs> it's, is it's complicated. It's easier to create propaganda for a simple idea than for a complex idea, I think. Correct. You're totally right. Yeah, it's nuanced. I mean, liberalism is definitionally a more nuanced and complex approach to the world because the world, we think, of course, we would say this, but the world is nuanced and complex. It's very rarely the case that you know, A is 100% right, B is completely wrong, everything's clear. If you just saw things my way, that's... And so I think to that extent, maybe the challenge is bigger because those presumptions about how you run a society are being challenged in a way that they haven't been for some time, although we talked about the 20th century earlier and so on, but certainly for the last few decades anyway, that this sense of the broad liberal consensus being largely accepted. And liberalism was actually the space in which politics used to be done. Now, liberalism has to have a politics of its own. And that's a huge shift. I, I think you're correct in that it's it's harder to create that kind of emotional pull of an, of an identity, of a tribe, when you're not at kind of a simplistic extreme. If you're just, you know, eat the rich and burn down capitalism. Capitalism is is to blame for all our problems. Eat the rich, re, mm -hmm. you know, viva la revolucion. It's it's a very simple idea. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't require a lot of, you know, hard thinking to think about, you know, how do I create songs and images and and messages that are gonna be based on that. Similarly on the right, if your idea is just, you know, foreigners and degeneracy are to blame for all of our problems and, you know, reject modernity go back to tradition. It's a, it's a pretty simple idea. And, and the idea that the world is complex and technocratic, but always, you know, slightly improving over time. Mm -hmm. And we've just got to keep muddling through and, and coming through these messy fixes because society is dynamic and we should embrace dynamism rather than staying in a static view of the world. That's a little harder. Mm -hmm. One of the ways we get around that in a practical sense, and this uh, I'll say this is from a U.S. perspective, from other other nationalities may have a different approach to this, but we tend to build some of the identity not just based on the abstract liberalism, but on some of the concrete policies that we're we're chasing after right now. For us, 
a lot of this is, you know, a, a very globalist view. We're very pro-immigration. Mm-hmm. We're very pro-trade. Um, we, we are generally in favor of in, international institutions. Obviously, not every international institution has been perfect in every instance, but this is generally our worldview. And so, you know, people who use the globe emoji on Twitter to signify that they are liberals know that that comes with, you know, a set of jokes about, how, you know, we want taco trucks on every corner. Uh-huh. You know, we want, um, you know, open borders and free trade. And, you know, we think container ships are the most beautiful thing in the world. And, <laughs> you know, there's kind of this this set of policy beliefs that you can have both as serious policy beliefs, but also inside jokes to communicate like we're members of the same tribe, we get each other, we use the same language. Because on a fundamental level, that's almost always what humans want, is to know that I'm accepted, I'm part of the tribe, I'm I'm welcomed here. And, you know, if we can do that, and then also sneak in the ideas of, you know, part of our ethos online is liberalism is a big tent. You know, we don't fight with each other if we believe different things about welfare policy or whatever. This is a big tent. We exchange ideas. If we can use the taco trucks jokes to smuggle in some of these liberal values about the value of exchange and uh, and the value of kind of polite discourse, then then we've succeeded. Yes. And I, I've I, I observe that I'm sort of of a generation. I'm in my I'm turned fifty, so I'm of a generation that's straddling the two <laughs> these two worlds. I think where I'm observing what you're doing online, and I'm and and most of the policies, of course, I agree with, um, and they are tribal signifiers. I think is what you're saying, um, and pro- probably sensible sensible policy as well. I guess my slight concern is. The particularly given this is a very parochial question, but given where you are now, kind of PPI and so on, is that some of the the agenda does sound it feels quite Clintonian, it feels quite Blairite, and look, I'm a <laughs> that's me talking about my world where I come from, but I think some of the challenges from the centre right. I mean, I guess Niskanen would 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 fall pretty much into this orbit too, the Niskanen Centre. But I think some of the tensions right around, for example, like religious liberty, uh, those, those have to be taken seriously by liberal pluralists, I think. And I don't see a, quite as much of that engagement, but perhaps I'm just missing from your quotes, your, the neoliberal tribe, as, as I would like to see. It starts to feel a bit too comfortably center-lefty, technocratic, you know, Cass Sunstein, Bill Clinton, PPI, maybe a bit of Brookings. Then, you know, I go down there, you had, you had Jenny Schutz on, she's the best housing scholar I know great but but it starts to feel a little bit sort of center-left technocrats but actually some of these other issues around well how do you strike a balance for example between the desire for anti-discrimination protection and the rights of civic institutions you know, including religions to 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 their own values those are tough questions and i don't i don't i don't know if you've gone far enough in that direction yet is that fair uh, potentially i'll say that just at least from our perspective and in in the world that we operate in politically, I don't see the kind of religious liberty questions being a, a massive topic of debate. Even, even the conservatives that I follow just don't seem to talk about it very much anymore. I don't know. Maybe it's because the conservatives that I follow are, are not the right conservatives, um, but – 
I, I just, at least in the US, I don't see, you know, th- there's some of that, but it seems to be a very limited conversation around, around religious liberty. And, and normally this is tied into like questions of respecting LGBT rights mm-hmm. and where the boundary is mm-hmm. between one of those things and the other. Yeah, I, I don't know. We, I think we don't say a lot about it. No, but, I, 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 you know. it says I think there's more. I think there's a lot more of it than you're seeing. I, if you take people like you take the Ethics and Public Policy Center and Jonathan Rausch, I've already mentioned in this book. He wrote a joint op-ed with uh, Peter Weiner from uh, EPPC and had looked at how Utah actually came to an agreement on this. This was in the context of the Equality Act and so on too. Um, uh, and so I kind of throw that as an example of it's a bit more a cultural issue. It's somewhat more looks a bit more towards the right because I can show you that a lot of conservatives are very worried about sensible conservatives who who are worried about the overreach of the state uh, in the guise of equality, uh, and I don't think they're crazy to be worried about some of that. Bill Golston, my colleague at Brookings, writing about liberal pluralism, um, you know, for a lot for decades now, I think has. This idea of how do you tolerate those differences within a plural society, they're somewhat more cultural. They're probably a little bit more on the centre-right and so on. Right now, the project, as I understand it, is, is very much in this quite a technocratic space. You know, housing, immigration, trade, uh, criminal justice reform, occupational licensing, you know, all that like, great stuff. And, and I think that's good, but I think some of these questions about culture, you take conservative rights like David French, for example, and pluralism, uh, I think some of them run a bit deeper. And I think that the liberal project has to encompass some really interesting conversations about some of those issues too. I think you're avoiding the culture war by staying in the policy lane and i get that totally but i worry a bit whether the bigger threat to liberalism as i think we've both been talking about it doesn't come from some of those cultural issues as opposed to whether or not you're in favor of exclusionary zoning i I would say that it's not a um it's not a clear distinction what is a policy issue versus what is a culture issue for instance immigration immigration is is both a a Mm. detailed policy issue where you can have very detailed wonkish totally beliefs fair. about yes. H1B but immigration is very much a culture war and we are very much in the middle of a you know of a culture war we're the extremists on one side saying open borders um so it's it's a it's a spectrum i guess there's you know it, there's shades of gray in between pure policy talk and pure culture war stuff i i think it's just a difficult question I do think that our identity, the, the identity group that we're crafting, tends to lean into we are technocrats. We are the kind of people who like to get into wonky policy detail. And, and we lean into that. Whether that's a good strategy or not, you know, time will tell, I guess. But it, it's something that's been happening. So we we do kind of lean very heavily on the people who are interested in policy, the people who are, you know, highly educated and it's something you know we're going to have to um we're going to have to grapple with as we grow mm. how do you because I, I see two different distinct brands of kind of how do you approach a center left politics and one is you could call it the working class argument where you you kind of go to the right on culture and you know you you look at like bill clinton's version of center leftism it was very much like you know 
beyond just all the welfare cuts that he wanted to do and, you know, we need welfare mm-hmm. reform, we need to make the system tougher. You look at Bill Clinton talk about immigration. He was very tough on immigration. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, mm-hmm. illegal immigrants go home. We need border security, blah, blah, blah. And it was very much this kind of like, let's move to the right on cultural issues. Let's, you know, Democrats were terrified to come out f- in favor of gay marriage because it was just a crushing issue for a long time that just the Republicans would beat them over the head with and win. And that's one version of how you go to the center left is you moderate a little bit on this kind of immigration or you moderate on, you know, cultural values, whether that's, you know, giving space for religious liberties, as the conservatives would call them. Another way that that we're kind of seeing if, if there's a path forward for is what I would call like a globalist center left, where you're, you're proudly capitalist, but, you know, you're not rejecting the institutions of immigration and international trade. You're in, val- you're, you're in favor of a, a pretty strong welfare state, but you're not going to the right culturally, you know, mm. uh, on, on things like LGBT rights or immigration or things like that. Um, yes. So I, I don't know. There's yeah, there's a couple right. different versions of. This. I think that's right. And you, you, the pod you did with Colin a while ago, Colin Mortimer had had social liberalism. Is you actually had to have social liberalism as part of his manifesto of what it meant to be neoliberal. And it is. It's looking back on this. Quite uh, the Clinton years were eye-wateringly socially conservative. It wasn't. It was Defense of Marriage Act. We had obviously the criminal justice um, bill, uh, the death penalty spiking during. I uh, talking to Liz Brunig yeah, about that. Bill, Bill Clinton felt the need to fly back to Arkansas so, to exactly. oversee a death row in you know a death row execution because he was on the campaign trail, uh, yeah. and so he had he had to be there to execute this African American guy, and so um, Ricky Ray, if I'm remembering correctly, and so this it was extraordinary <laughs> marriage. Um, and so obviously the world has hugely changed since then and massively for the better. And so, but I think the challenge is particularly in a country like the U S where there is still such huge cultural diversity and where the right, I think are going to play these kind of cultural tunes pretty loud is to go back to this idea of, of pluralism around values and culture and so because otherwise it's danger that we lose the value of pluralism and i don't this is not tacking to the right on social conservatism but it is about recognizing that there are many issues we're not going to agree on and how do how do we find a way to disagree on them and still live together in peace trade with each other get richer do all the good stuff rather than breaking ourselves into pieces over those cultural issues and so like it or not i think we do have to engage with them a bit more and the one thing I'll say is, I wish I had thought of this earlier, because I think this is perhaps the the most comprehensive answer I could give to, to the question of the religious liberties question. I, I actually think I would disagree in the diagnosis that this is going to be one of the motivating questions of the next decade of politics. I actually think that we're we're moving out of that phase, that this was the motivating question of the last decade of politics as we grappled with gay marriage and and whether bakers in Colorado should have mm. to bake a cake for for a gay wedding, I think that race is really going to be the motivating factor uh, mm. of a social conservative push over the next decade. That Black Lives Matter has exploded, and it's also raised this question of 
you know, not just what does it mean to be black in America, but what does it mean to be white? Yes. If you are a, a white rural conservative, you, for the first time ever, kind of have to think about your whiteness. You're, you're forced to confront your whiteness in some ways. And that's, you know, not something that, that voters have typically had to do. And so there's a lot of pushback over, over are, are we doing racial justice in the right way? And I think that, you know, even some progressives have basically said, you know, the, the racial justice stuff is going overboard, not because racial justice is a bad idea, but because if you want racial justice, progressives have to hold power. And you're not going to hold power if you keep communicating in this kind of academic seminar way that, that you try to communicate with the public, where you teach them about white fragility mm-hmm. or, or whatever, you know, fashionable nonsense is going on in, in the halls of academia, that, you know, white voters, you still need to win those voters. And I don't know, I, I think that's the big challenge is going to be dealing with race issues. And, you know, can can liberals and progressives not alienate white voters while still making tangible gains on racial justice. You know, Matt Iglesias talks about this a lot that like his, his line is something like Democrats should do racial justice without calling it racial justice. Yes. Without ever mentioning that it, it helps any particular racial group, like the child tax credit, just by nature of how many kid, how many people from each race have how many kids, the child tax credit will disproportionately benefit black and brown families by a lot. Mm-hmm. But it would be a mistake, according to Matt Iglesias, to go out to the public and say, because of racial justice, because of white oppression of black people, we need a child tax credit. It's better to just say, you know, let's help parents. Let's, you know, we shouldn't have kids in poverty. Let's help parents, you know, and let it happen kind of naturally. Yeah, I think I think yes. these are the ways that we have to do this without ever you know, saying, oh, well, I'm going to respect your view, open exchange. Like, we, it doesn't have to be that explicit as much as do simple things to not alienate people who disagree with you. Yes, I've argued for what I've called race conscious policies, which I think is what you're talking about there and what um, Iglesias has written about, which is it's not race blind. So you're aware that there'll be different impacts for different racial groups, but it's not race based in the sense of this is only going to be for a particular group. And child tax credit is one example of that. I just did some work with Scott Winship at AEI, where we showed that most third, most third generation poor people in the US are black, it's like 83%. So let's say you had a wealth transfer policy that focused on people who were in the third generation of poverty in their family. That would be a massively pro-African American policy, but there'd be some whites would benefit from it too, just not very many. And so that would be an example of a, a race-conscious policy. And I think that is probably broadly the direction to go in. My fear is there's still there's still just going to be enough of an argument about the historic treatment of black Americans and the anti-black racism that I think has continued to disfigure American politics for so long that something, uh, I think the moral arguments for reparations and so on have always been quite strong. It's obviously so late and, and the U.S. has gotten itself into such a terrible position on all of this by failing to recognize this stuff earlier and deal with it earlier. But I do wonder if there isn't some sort of combination of a genuine, as much a cultural reckoning, and then a moving on with race-conscious policies. I don't think it can be – I don't think that the moment is just going to pass. I don't think I – th- I used to think time would heal – 
I used to think the trend lines are going in the right way, that the right policies and patience and respect and we'll get there. But I don't see the trend lines for a lot of black Americans, especially black men, actually, just just not moving. And so I worry that we have to do something. I don't know what that something is. I think it's no single cause. This is going to be a, a multi-causal kind of thing where, you know, if, if we get criminal justice policy fixed to some extent, that's going to help. You know, and again, sure. you, it's not something you have to sell as, you know, you, you don't have to sell, you know, weed should be legal as a racial justice thing. You certainly can, but you can also just sell it as, you know, weed should be legal. Um, yes. And, you know, that that and just a, a less punishing carceral state would be very valuable. I think that welfare state policy has something to do with this. I think housing policy has something to do with this. And it's just going to take lots of chipping away at lots of policies I'm still pretty optimistic that racial justice will continue improving over time. You know, it's we're still not that far away from, you know, the U.S. being an apartheid state. It was 50 or 60 years ago that, uh, you know, we were essentially an apartheid state, uh, like, you know, not that different from what South Africa was. Um, But, you know, things change. And the, the history of the U.S. in a lot of ways is the history of white supremacy. You know, we were a slave state for most of most of our existence. And then in 1860, we we freed the slaves. But, you know, another hundred years existed where we were an apartheid state. Yes. And, we, you know, that doesn't go away just after one decade or two decades. The echoes continue. But in general, I just um, I guess this loops back into the conversations about is liberalism in danger and and how do we react to that because i'm in a very sensitive spot right now where i just don't think the democrats functional and if you're talking about a party of liberalism in the united states it's the democrats um the republican party is is in a very bad place right now so if we just if we're frank and we say that democrats need to continue to hold power because republicans are playing you know games with democracy that that are deeply that are deeply troubling. I don't, I am very concerned with the Democrats continuing to hold power. And so if that means messaging things in a certain way to appeal to more socially conservative voters, then, then so be it. That's how we have to message them. And, you know, if we were in a better place, we could have that conversation about, should we be more explicit in our messaging? But right now I think just, my personal view of the danger of the illiberal moment mm-hmm. is quite high. So I'm, I'm very sensitive to things that would like lose the democratic hold on government for what I would consider to be very silly reasons. So I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where I come down on this. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I, I agree that right now the best hope for the sorts of policies that we've been talking about. And I would say not just policies, but inclinations and approaches are to be found in the, more sensible reaches of the Democratic Party, for sure. And so holding power and holding off a Trump-like candidate from retaking the White House is arguably the most important political task (laughs) in front of us. And so I tend to agree that everything else can in this these kinds of moments has to be somewhat second order to that. Then what that means in terms of the political calculation is something that fortunately is not my job to worry about because the, diff- <laughs> the, cha- the challenge between getting out your base 
and holding your party together and not alienating voters, independent voters, around issues like crime, for example, and immigration, uh, which I think are going to be huge in the midterms and, and in 2024. That's a huge political challenge. But I, I do agree that if you can if you can present compelling evidence that approach A is more likely to you know, secure the political apparatus for Democrats, then right now, if you're a liberal, clearly that's that's the way to go. You can imagine a world where that's not the case, right? The way the Democrats could have gone in a different direction and Republicans have gone in a different direction. But I agree that that's that the politics of this right now have to be weighted even more heavily sometimes than the policy tech, technocratic side. So we should probably so, we should probably wrap, right? And you should probably tell me yeah. which books to read. Don't you do this thing at the end of your podcast <laughs> where you ask? I should have thought about this, but it's 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 always my my final question to any guest is for the topic that we're covering. If people want to learn more, what should they read? What you know, this could be books, blogs, you know, uh, uh, even follow this particular Twitter account because they have good insight. It it can be anything, but. I guess today's topic has kind of broadly been <laughs> yeah. liberalism, liberalism and, and how it applies to the and how it kind of applies to the current moment. So what what are the works that kind of guide your thinking? And obviously, you're a big mill guy. Big, yeah. So um, are you going to do it? Are you going to go as well? Seeing as this is a joint podcast, I, are you going to do your? Sure, I, I I can absolutely go. Do on, it. You go first. So when I think about liberalism and, and how I conceive of of my version of liberalism, because you know I I call myself a neoliberal. But that is a category of liberalism. I am a, a liberal first and then some subset of liberalism second. One of the things that I've read recently that I think is is excellent is Adam Gopnik's A Thousand Small Sanities. Hmm. That's a kind of a left liberal defense of of liberalism from both the the far left and the far right. He he takes the time to sketch out like what are the what are the what are the right's problems with liberalisms? What what flaws do they see? What are the left's problems with liberalisms? What what flaws do they see? And why do I think that liberalism still matters anyway? These core liberal values. Um, he's coming from kind of a left liberal viewpoint. He's a Bernie Sanders voter, for instance. But I think his core defense of the liberal project in the modern world is really good. If I was going to recommend something for a more center right version of of neoliberalism. It's Madsen Peary's The Neoliberal Mind. I think Madsen Peary is a guy who's associated with the Adam mm -hmm. Smith Institute in, in the UK. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he wrote uh, a little – it's not a full book. It's more like a um, a little treatise. I, I don't know how you would call it. It's maybe 40 or 50 pages long called The Neoliberal Mind, basically arguing for liberalism and kind of more a center-right liberalism – but liberalism nonetheless and and extolling what what are core neoliberal values what do neoliberals think about many of the different topics that are kind of the most important things today mm. so those are the two things i would recommend you know uh the neoliberal mind and then a thousand small sanities from maybe a center left and a center right liberal perspective those are good choices i actually reviewed uh, gopnik's book and i was uh, impressed with it for the literary review i guess um, so I'll put some, I'll add it to the show notes, but um, the the particularly strong chapter of his book, I think, is when he takes on the left, because that's his, obviously that's where he comes from. And I think Gopnik's, uh, right, when he writes about the 
the promise and perils of intersectionality, for example, is this great line where it says we have to intersect all the way down to the individual. The problem with intersectionality is it doesn't go far enough. We're all, the, there are nodes uh, in which different values come together, and those nodes are called individuals. Uh, at something when, like when that. you become so intersectional, you're now Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, it's, <laughs> <There's> a- <laughs> it's exactly, um, and I think so. That was for me. That was the most powerful part of that book. So I, I really like that recommendation. So I will recommend uh, one thing I've done with Jonathan Haidt, which is a an illustrated edition, new edition of Chapter Two of Mills on Liberty, which is the the chapter on free speech, and so. That's it's called all minus one. It comes back to this point about eccentric. So I'd recommend that. I would also recommend. I've mentioned Bill Goldston, my colleague at Brookings, and I'm I'm not sure where I'd position him politically now. Actually, be very obviously very associated with Clinton and worked in the Clinton White House. But his new book is what I guess a couple of years old now. It's called Anti Pluralism: The Populist Threat to Liberal Democracy. So I think that's a, a terrifically good book. One you've mentioned, I think, on this podcast before, and I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about him, perhaps we will another time, is Amartya Sen. I think you've mentioned development as freedom before, Jeremiah, on this podcast, but his his book, The Idea of Justice, is sort of a Sen's greatest hits. It's it's a a tough read in some ways, um, but I think this, the idea of individualism, which underpins Sen's liberalism is in the spirit of mill but in but respectful of hayek if i can put it that way and and very very deep and grounded and practical philosophy and so you know when i'm asked who's my kind of modern hero if mill's my 19th century hero then amartya sen is 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 right up there and so i would say his book uh, the idea of justice would be a good companion to the ones we've already mentioned I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to talk about some of your books because, you know, there's there's a lot out there. Everyone should go check out the book that, that Richard's done with John Haidt. It's, uh, you know, an illustrated version of, of John Stuart Mill. Um, you should all check out Dream Hoarders. If you've never read Dream Hoarders, it's required reading and you don't get to call yourself a neoliberal until you do. Um, <laughs> no, um, right. <laughs> but uh, you know, maybe, maybe in a future conversation. But I would love. I to guess do we'll, more of we'll that wrap too. it there. Yeah, but I, also I really enjoyed having you on. Same and same to you. And people should check out the uh, the neoliberal project, which is now at, at PPI and Exponents. Is that the name of your newsletter? Which I, I think. Yeah. So you can find us at neoliberalproject.org. We have a magazine called Exponents mm, Mag, which is a, a, a community magazine where. You know, it, if I'm allowed to pitch that, you know, anybody can anybody can write into exponents We're we're explicitly looking for young and developing writers and we, you know, provide them some editing and uh, and help them get published, you know, so, yeah, it's fun. Well, that was great. Thank, thanks so much for doing this together, Jeremiah. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.